you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them out and turn to the book of Isaiah once again. This morning we're going to be looking, looking at Isaiah's chapters 21 through 23. 21 through 23. I'm just going to read for us chapter 21 of Isaiah this morning. So Isaiah 21, chapter 20, or Isaiah 21, verses 1 through 17. Let me remind you that this is God's good and kind and gracious word to you this morning. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me, the traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media. All the signs she has caused I bring to an end. Therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes. Oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees when he sees riders, horsemen in pairs. Riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and, I, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. O oh, my threshed and winnowed one, what have I heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. The oracle concerning Duma. One is calling to me from Seir. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? And the watchman says, morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravan of the dead dead nights. To the thirsty bring water. Meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end, and the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us understand His word today. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank You for giving us this word today, and we pray that You would help us to understand it as there are difficult things uh, for us to see in this passage, uh, both difficult because uh, of the style of the writing and also because of the context and the content. Uh, Father, I pray that You would help us to understand how Isaiah was pointing us to Jesus Christ. I hope, uh, pray that you would help us to see our own hearts as well uh, in uh, the midst of these, these things in your word as you reveal to us our sin and our need for Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I remember reading Jonathan Swift's essay, A Modest Proposal. Have you read that? You need to read it. I read it in high school. And uh, I think it was ninth grade or 10th grade, and I remember reading this essay, and I was 
revolted and disgusted by what I read. I could not believe that they had us read this essay in high school because Jonathan Swift in this essay proposed a a solution to the problem of poverty in Ireland in the 19th century. He said what poor families should do is they were having a lot of children and they couldn't feed them. They should sell those children to the wealthy so that the wealthy could then eat their children. It's a revolting prospect. It's a revolting idea. And then, thankfully, I had a teacher that explained to me he was being satirical in his writing. He wasn't actually suggesting this. He took the most ridiculous idea and put it on paper to highlight what some of the suggestions surrounding, uh, or, or how silly some of the suggestions surrounding the problem of poverty and dealing with the problem of poverty in Ireland in the 17th century actually were. It's a lot like if if you're familiar with the Babylon Bee and how the Babylon Bee writes and the things that they say. Some of you know that, some of you don't, that's okay. It's satirical. It's meant to be ridiculous. It's meant to be uh, uh, to show the absolute most ridiculous side of things in order for you to laugh, to think it's funny, and then to think about solutions to things. And then, you know, after I read it, after I realized what the point of the writing of it was, I thought, man, Jonathan Swift must have really enjoyed writing this. And then he really must have enjoyed the, the, the way that people responded to this. Well, in this passage today, in all its difficulty, Isaiah is employing some of the, the same kinds of methods that Jonathan Swift employs. He employs hyperbole, puns wordplay, double entendre, and things like that in order to get his point across. But I doubt Isaiah enjoyed writing it very much because of the nature of the things that he's dealing with. Isaiah brought all of his genius to bear in writing these things down, but he's writing down prophecy that will be fulfilled that's prophecy about the destruction of these nations. And ultimately, in all of these things, What he's doing for us is he's highlighting a common theme throughout the scriptures, and that theme is the city of man versus the city of God. The city of man is the city that man is building, whether a physical city or a a metaphorical city that he's building in order to prop himself up against God versus the city of God that God is building. This morning, Isaiah is taking us back into history once again, just like we saw last week. But he's doing it so that we can learn a deeper spiritual lesson. Last week, he taught us that God is sovereign over all of the events of human history. But this week, he's looking at five nations once again. And he's going to describe their destruction. But in doing so, he's not just looking at those nations as nations. He's using those nations as symbols or as symbolic representations of foundations upon which people tend to build their lives. The Bible teaches us that everyone, including you, is building your life upon some foundation, some sort of support. And Isaiah's goal is to show that all human foundations, as can be found in the city of man, fail because they can't withstand the judgment of Yahweh. So we're going to look at this passage in three ways today. First of all, we're going to see the five nations that he mentions. Secondly, the five lessons that he teaches, the five spiritual lessons that he teaches. And then thirdly, we're going to have one big takeaway uh, from this passage. So let's jump in and look at the five different nations 
that Isaiah is uh, talking about in this passage. Uh, the five nations are this, just right off the bat, just so you know. Babylon, Edom, Arabia, Judah, and Tyre. Those are the five nations. So let's deal with Babylon first. Notice in 21.1 what he calls Babylon. He says, the oracle concerning the wilderness by the sea. Now, thankfully, in 21.9, he tells us that he's talking about Babylon. And we need him to tell us that he's talking about Babylon because no one in Isaiah's day and no one today would describe Babylon as a wilderness by the sea. He's doing something kind of funny here. Babylon wasn't a wilderness. It was well known as this lush area that was well fed by the Euphrates River. It was a beautiful area full of lush gardens and, 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 uh, and just it was magnificent in how lush it was. And it wasn't by the sea. So there's no one that would have called it the wilderness by the sea. But again, Isaiah is kind of making fun of Babylon here and describing it this way. He's telling us about Babylon's spiritual condition. Man has built this grand city to be a monument to his own ingenuity and his own greatness. But according to God and his judgment, that city is really a wilderness or it's an uninhabited land. And if you remember anything about the way the sea is described throughout the Old Testament especially, the sea is the place of chaos. Now, you get the comparison. Man thinks of Babylon and its hanging gardens that were one of the ancient wonders of the, or the wonders of the ancient world and all of its technology and all of its power and all of its wealth and all of its abundance as the ideal place to live. But God thinks it's a wilderness by the sea of chaos. That's the first nation that he mentions. Secondly, he mentions Duma. Duma. Um, again, he, he's making a play on word here. He's making fun of this nation. The word Duma sounds like the word Edom. And in Hebrew, it's almost the exact same word. It's hard to show that in, in English because of the spelling is different. But in Hebrew, it's spelled almost exactly the same. And so he's saying an oracle concerning Duma, which is really Edom. And then you see there in the second line, one is calling to me from Seir. Seir was the capital of Edom. So it's another help in interpreting this. It tells us he's talking about Edom. The word Duma means silence. And so Isaiah is making fun of Edom and he's saying that Edom is the place of silence. And you see in this section there from 11 uh, to uh, 12, 11 and 12, 21, 11 and 12. There's this man that's asking for information. He's asking for a word uh, from the watchman. But the watchman responds and says, I have no word. I have nothing to tell you. Come back again and ask again. He's receiving silence from this watchman. And what Isaiah is saying is that in the land of Edom, Yahweh remains silent. That Edom is the place of darkness and ignorance and foolishness. And because of that foolishness, Edom is going to be destroyed. That's the second city. The third city that he, that he or the, the third nation that he mentions is Arabia. Now, Arabia, and even the word Arabia, means hidden. 
And Arabia is the place of hidden things. In Isaiah's day, it was a place that when an invading army would come in and take over your nation, you would pick up your stuff as much as you could carry and you would flee to Arabia. It's it's Saudi Arabia to us today, that same location. It's barren. It's desolate. There's only a few pockets of places where people can live. But it was so barren and so desolate that if you had to flee there, you knew you would probably find security because other nations wouldn't even dare to try to bring their army into that region. They would die in the desert, and so you could find security and safety there. It was so out of the way, and people would try to find security in Arabia. But what Isaiah says is that even Arabia, even the nation of Arabia and the people of Arabia will be destroyed. They think they can hide, but they will be destroyed. Fourth, in the section we didn't read, but I hope you will go back and read it, chapter 22, he says, The oracle concerning the valley of vision. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. And then you see a little bit later in verse 8, he has taken away the covering of Judah. So we know the valley of vision is the nation of Judah. And once again, Isaiah is using a word play in order to describe the nation of Judah. Why is it word play? It's meant to be kind of funny, except that it really isn't funny. Well, he calls Judah and Jerusalem specifically the valley of vision. Well, if you know anything about the geographic location of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah itself is that it's not in the valley. It's actually up on the mountain. And if you want to see something, you go on top of the mountain. You don't go into the valley. The valley is the place of darkness and death. Uh, In this land, you know, they have these high, high mountains and deep, deep valleys You know, sheer drops off the cliff so that the valleys uh, in many of the places in the valleys in this region, uh, sun never shines in there. And so life doesn't grow. And you see Isaiah describing Judah as the valley of vision. Well, you can't see in the valley of vision. But Jerusalem and Judah were called to be the light to the world by Yahweh. Jerusalem, once again, is up on Mount Zion, and the temple is there. The presence of God is there. And Judah, of all nations, should be the mountaintop of vision. But not so, according to Isaiah. Jerusalem is actually the valley of darkness. And Judah, too, will be destroyed because it has rejected the light of Yahweh. And then fifth and finally... In chapter 23, Isaiah mentions the nation of Tyre. This is one of the more prominent cities and the more prominent nations of its day. It was on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, kind of north of Israel just a little bit. It was a major center for trade between the civilizations of the far west and of the far east. All cultures and nations gathered to trade their wares in Tyre. And because of their position... They gained in their wealth, they gained in abundance, and all of the things that follow with that, uh, they, they gained more and more of. And you see how Isaiah describes this city at the very end of chapter 23. Verse 16, he says, Take up a harp, go apart, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. He describes Tyre as a prostitute. 
They're, they lure people into their trap. They lure people with their abundance and their wealth. But what happens to this city with all of her wealth and abundance? She too is destroyed. Her wealth cannot save her. So those are the five cities that we see. Each of these great nations is great for a different reason. But there's a common thread that runs through all of them. The common thread is that they are destroyed by the Lord. All of them fall short from God's perspective in some monumental way. Now, the main thing that we need to learn from each of them is that each of them represents the city of man in some way, the city of man that is going against the city of God. And even Judah is described as the city of man. Judah as the Old Testament church. They should have known better, but they fall into the same trap the same trap of put going against the city of God. So those are the things that we learned. Those are the five different cities. So what about the five lessons that we learn from each of these cities? Well, first, what about Babylon? We need to understand that Babylon represents man's trust in human power, ingenuity, and technology. Remember, Babylon was thought of, thought of as the seat of human learning and greatness. Ancient writers would go to this city and would talk about how wonderful it was, how nothing would ever destroy this city because it was so great. From ancient times, it was the place of technological advancement uh, and great wealth. They actually figured out ways to make water run uphill in, in Babylon to, to feed their hanging gardens. More importantly, however... It's the place that has most set itself up against God and all of His purposes. That's why in the book of Revelation, in chapter 18, the Apostle John uses the city of Babylon as the great enemy against God. And there in Revelation, you see the same words that you see here in Isaiah. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And here's the deep spiritual lesson for us. All who trust in human ingenuity and human power and human technology will fall just like Babylon. Today, in different parts of the world, there are different groups that are working on what they have called the transhumanism project. Now, what ultimately the transhumanism project is, it's a means to overcome the limitations of humanity through various means. Some of them or to make us bionic in some way, to improve upon our strength and our physical abilities in some kind of technological way. But the biggest part of the transhumanism project is actually to subvert the curse that God has put on humans and to make us eternal by uploading our consciousness into something like the Internet. That sounds like something from science fiction, but there are lots of wealthy people that talk about this day by day by day. And you can go and you can research this and it is gaining in popularity. All of this attempt by the transhumanist to overcome humanity is an attempt to prop itself up and prop humans up against what God has said will happen. And here's what we need to remember. The transhumanists are going to fail and they will fall just like Babylon has fallen. And as Christians, we need to be careful not to be seduced by the allure 
of power and technology, especially when it goes against something that God has said should and, and will happen, something like our eventual death because of sin. Secondly, what about Duma or Edom? Well, if Babylon is the seat of trusting in human ingenuity, Edom is the seat of trusting in human ignorance. And you go, well, who would do that? This is a big part of American society. There have always been those that see the inherent elitism of Babylon and have rejected that elitism of the city of Babylon in favor of a simpler kind of life, a life of ignorance. But instead of rejecting human greatness, they tend to go to the opposite direction and trust in human ignorance. The best example I can think of this type of rejection is what you find in the show that was very popular in the early 2000s or the mid-2000s, Jersey Shore. Okay, I never watched this show. I don't know anything about this show other than it became a cultural phenomenon because the people represented on that show were very wealthy. They were young. They were good-looking. And they pursued a life of ignorance and pleasure and stupidity. And largely because their parents had rejected the elitism of New York and New York City and had moved to the Jersey Shore to get away from all of that. And their kids became idiots. And they put their trust in their idiocy. They filled their lives with the opposite of human achievement, human idleness. It's an empty life, but one that is attractive to so many. But it also subverts the will of God, just like Babylon does, by denying our intrinsic worth and denying what God has called us to do as people made in his image. So that's the second one that we see, Babylon and then Duma or Edom. Third, what about Arabia? Whatever Arabia. Arabia represents trusting in seclusion. Arabia was that land full of wanderers and nomad. People would escape from their nations and invading armies. Uh, They wouldn't be tied down to anyone or anything. It was full of people who fled the city of man to get away from all of their troubles. But in fleeing from one city of man, they didn't flee to the city of God. They fled into themselves. They made their own seclusion their refuge. I think this actually applies the most to people that come to Clinton, Louisiana to get away from it all, right? You try to find seclusion and peace in seclusion. Arabia can be summarized by the quote from the existentialist philosopher who said, hell is other people. But in Arabia, you will find no escape from the wrath of God. You will find no escape in your seclusion from your own sin. There you will find in your own heart the city of man grows deeper and bigger than you ever thought it could. Fourth, and perhaps most scary for us, is Judah and Jerusalem. This city represents trusting in bare religion. Remember, Judah was the beneficiary of the true religion that Yahweh had given. It was true Yahweh worship. They had the temple, they had the presence of God, But over time, they began to think that their privileged position was because of something that they did. They were the law keepers. They were the good ones. And Yahweh blessed them because they were good. And they believed that it was their adherence to the law that made them good. They did not truly love God. They did not truly uh, uh, 
want God. They wanted the things that God could give them. And they got, tried to get those things through their religious zeal. But ultimately, they were trying to control Yahweh. All that trust in bare religion, it's a means... Uh, well, all that trust uh, in bare religious activity is a means of salvation. Uh, it's like uh, the ancient Judeans. So coming to church reading your Bible, thinking that being good is a way for you to be saved. It's just like the Judeans. There's no way to escape judgment through religious adherence. Fifth and finally, you see Tyre. Tyre represents, in verse, or chapter 23, human tendency to trust in riches. The people of Tyre had a chip on their shoulder because they thought of themselves as too big to fail. They controlled the lucrative shipping and trade routes over the Mediterranean Sea. And so their only allegiance was to their God, the free market. As long as they could make money, they thought themselves secure. In short, they trusted in their bank accounts. But as I have noted many, many times before, there's no amount of money, there's no amount of of material resources that you can have that will save you from the wrath of God. So there's five spiritual lessons for you to learn from each of these nations. Man is seeking security in so many different places, but ultimately all of them are different manifestations of the city of man. At the end of Revelation, there is a one final battle, the last battle that takes place between the city of man and the city of God. At that point, Babylon is the final ultimate representation of the city of man. And she brings all of the kingdoms under her banner. And she brings everyone together to fight against the city of God led by God himself. And there's this great buildup to this, uh, to this final last battle. And the last battle ultimately lasts only three verses. Because the city of man is no competition against the city of God. The city of man is destroyed swiftly quickly and completely. So there's the spiritual lesson for you. If you put your hope in the city of man, you too will be destroyed. What's the big takeaway for us? Look at chapter 23. The very end of this section in chapter 23, verse 17, we're told something really interesting about Tyre. 17, uh, 23, 17. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. It's an interesting thing that the Lord destroys Tyre through an invading army, but then he visits the city and he allows the city to regain her prominence once again. And what does the city do after the Lord visits her? It doesn't give its allegiance to the Lord. She returns to her prostitution, prostituting herself with all of the nations of the world. She doesn't flee to the Lord for cover, but she goes to the kings and the kingdoms of the earth. So what does it say is going to happen to her? Well, she's going to be wealthy again and she's going to be prominent again. But I want you to notice something that it says in verse 18. Her prominence will not be for her sake. This is what it says. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. That is an amazing thing that we read there. 
You see, in all the work of the city of man and all the things that the city of man are doing, they think they're supplying human purposes, but ultimately they're working for and supplying God's purposes in the city of God and those that dwell in the city of God. There's a lot that we can learn from this one little section, but it's a reminder to us that the things of the city of man are not always in and of themselves evil. Power is not evil as long as it's used for the Lord's sake. Money isn't evil as long as it's used for the Lord's purposes. Technology and ingenuity are wonderful things. Um, And I was, as I was recording uh, the sermon, this sermon and all the things that that are going out on the live stream right now as we speak, I was thinking about how, how wonderful technology is and how how it allows us to reach out beyond this little sphere of influence that we have. It's a wonderful thing. Technology is wonderful if used for the sake of the kingdom of God and not for man's kingdom. The problem is that our sinful hearts take these good things that we find in the city of man and we pervert them into things that we think will save us or we pervert them into things that will serve our purposes and not God's. So how can we as Christians bring those things under the headship of God We need to remember that we only can enjoy these things because the Lord has visited us. If we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, have been given new hearts, then we need to use our renewed hearts and minds and wills for the sake of His glory and not our own. You need to remember the first answer to the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to glorify you with our lives, that we would not be working for the city of man, but that we would be working and looking for the eternal city, your city, the city of God. I pray that you would help us to glorify you, to work for your ends and your purposes, and that our trust would be in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his holy name. Amen. We're going to close by singing.